confused by finances, investing, estate and retirement planning? Well, I went to school so you don't have to. Welcome to Finances and Listener Questions. Finances and, in conjunction with my company, Capital Coaching, helps people achieve their financial goals through a personal, tailored, and attentive financial coaching services. Together, we'll create a successful financial plan by examining your spending and saving habits, then guiding and educating you to personal success. Coaching services include evaluation of your spending plan or budget, building your savings, financing your retirement, examining your insurance needs, and planning for your individual goals. Please contact me at capitalcoaching.net to make an appointment for a free consultation. I was talking to a friend recently and they were asking me, what was the difference between a CPA or a CFA? And it made me start to realize that there are lots of acronyms in the financial world and some of them are very confusing. So generally, they're terms you've heard and you feel like you should know what they mean, but you're not sure. So I thought I'd go over a few of them. A CPA is a certified public accountant. This designation is provided by each state's board of accountancy. The resources for this exam are provided by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. They have to have 150 hours of education, a bachelor's degree in business administration, finance, or accounting. Additionally, they must have two or more years of public accounting and pass the uniform CPA exam. This is usually held by those people who do tax preparation, auditing, bookkeeping, information technology, managerial accounting, or forensic accounting. The history of the CPA is that it started in 1887 when the American Association of Public Accountants was created to identify moral standards for the accounting industry. The first CPA licenses were awarded in 1896. In 2002, when Arthur Anderson, a top national accounting firm, went out of business and the Enron scandal occurred, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act was passed to create tougher restrictions for CPAs consulting assignments to try and help keep our money safer. CFPs, which are certified financial planners, are educated in taxes, insurance, investing, retirement planning, and estate planning. They too need to pass a CFP board exam along with ongoing annual education to maintain their certification. They also need to work in the industry for five years and need to demonstrate their ethics since they're responsible for the client's entire financial life from budgeting to end of life planning. They, like many, get involved with overseeing others' money, and they're called fiduciaries, meaning that they're required to make only decisions that meet their client's best interest, not to try and make money for themselves by selling you something you don't actually need. They can provide many services to create a comprehensive plan for each individual. They look at your life insurance, your retirement plans, your portfolio allocation, inheritance issues education savings, and consumer debt, and they're just a few of the topics that they can help you plan for. They can also help with specific circumstances like military families or special needs children. They can help you plan for retirement and for how your money will move to your family after your passing. A CFA, or Chartered Financial Analyst, work in investment analysis. The program includes a three-part exam on the fundamentals of investing tools, valuing assets, portfolio management, and wealth planning. Generally, those who have a background in finance, accounting, economics, or business might consider this. These charter holders are qualified to hold senior and executive positions in investment management, risk management, and asset management. 
This particular organization came around in 1937 when a small group of analysts were meeting casually with about 100 of their members. This grew to 700 in 1944, and in 1962, the CFA program began, with 268 men and women passing the exam the following year, earning the first charters. Another question that someone's been asking me lately is about the new student loans and the forgiveness of them. Student loans are getting another four months break before you'll need to make payments. This means that interest-free payments are paused once again, even though they were supposed to begin on May 2nd. Now they're scheduled to resume on August 31st. The danger is that so many have planned to not budget for these loans into what they owe, so once these payments begin again, it may be hard for some people to afford them. Make sure that if you are one of those people that you are able to take advantage of the extension, but that you're financially prepared to make the payments once you have to again. Keep the payments that you're not making in a way so that the money is there, and if for some reason the loans are forgiven, you'll be able to apply the funds to an emergency account or some other budget item. Taxes are a big thing right now. They're due in the next couple weeks. And someone was asking me about health insurance benefits and if they were taxable. Health insurance benefits are not taxable by federal or state taxes. And if you pay your own insurance, you can write off the premium and your out-of-pocket costs in most cases. If your employer does not provide you your insurance and instead provides a financial stipend so that you can buy insurance, you'll not be taxed on that amount. If you receive money from your insurance company, though, it will probably be due to a disability claim, and those benefits are taxable as income. If you're self-employed, your employer's contributions are 100% tax-deductible for himself or herself and for their spouse and dependents on your business tax forms. Finally, you may deduct your health insurance premiums if your expenses exceed 7.5% of your AGI, meaning that after all your income is counted and the adjustments are deducted and your expenses are more than 7 and 5 tenths percent, you can take the deduction. For example, if your AGI is $50,000, your medical expenses have to exceed $3,750 to be deductible. So, for example, if your expenses are $4,750, only $1,000 of that is deductible. Some self-employed individuals may deduct their health premiums even if they don't exceed the 7.5% as long as you're not eligible to participate in another person's plan, you're self-employed and don't have another job that offers a health insurance plan, or you're not eligible to be covered on a spouse's plan for some reason. The last topic that I was asked about was FANG and FANG stocks. This acronym was created for the superstar companies that have been growing and doubling in the past five or more years. They include Facebook, Amazon, now called Meta, Netflix, and Google, which is now called Alphabet. In 2017, Apple was added to this group, so the acronym is F-A-A-N-G, The reason that Jim Cramer from Mad Money even created this moniker is due to these companies' incredible growth and net profits from over 3,300 other tech companies that are traded on the NASDAQ. Meta and Amazon have grown 191% and 335% respectively, while Netflix grew 480% and Google has grown 276%. 
If these stocks have already grown this much, should you invest in them? As high as these stocks are right now, they are still considered a buy or a strong buy on the NASDAQ. In July, Google, or now Alphabet, will have a 20 to 1 stock split at close of business on July 15th, so they'll be more affordable then. Amazon is also going to participate in a 20 for 1 split on June 3rd. So what do these splits even mean? To start with, the split lowers the trading price so that it's accessible to more people. An example would be if the price was $2,785 a share on split day, and if they're splitting at 20 to 1, your stock would now cost $139 to buy. That means that more people can afford shares. But what about the people who already paid that money for one share? What happens to them? Nothing. If they paid $2,785 on the day before for one share, now they have 20 shares with the value of $2,785 still. It makes sense if it's easier to manage your equity since you can sell a few shares if you want to and not have to sell all of your investment at once. But why would a company go do this? They want to increase the total number of shares without diluting or reducing the price of your current stock value. The average investor would rather buy 100 shares of a $10 stock versus $1,000 a share for one stock, even though that same amount is equal if you're comparing the price of the same company, meaning more people will be buying their stock and renewing interest in investing in that company. Don't worry, none of this affects your taxes or changes the fundamental value of the companies that we're talking about. Thanks for listening to Finances and Listener Questions. I know you chose to listen and I'm very grateful. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow or subscribe for free in your podcast provider and share your favorite episode with a friend. I'd love you to leave a review because it brings financial education to others and helps people find me more easily. Also, please let me know what questions you'd like answered, like today, or any topics you'd like covered by going to the website at financesand.net and leaving a message. You can also contact Capital Coaching for your personal financial needs at capitalcoaching.net. Finances and does not provide tax or legal advice, and nothing in this podcast is to be construed as such. Always consult your own tax, accounting, or legal professional for advice on your specific situation. Remember, I went to school, so you don't have to.